Welcome to ADRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technologies ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service. Hi, this is Rich Myers with NCAT. In this episode, Andrew Coggins, Director of the National Center for Appropriate Technologies Rocky Mountain West Office, continues his conversation with farm manager John Wallace about research in season extension and other topics at NCAT's SIFT farm. Both Andrew and John work out of Butte, Montana. SIFT, or Small Scale Intensive Farm Training Program, aims to help communities increase their food security by producing their own healthy food. SIFT, with NCAT, has a working, sustainably managed demonstration farm on five acres at our Butte office. This farm is the center of a program that teaches farmers and future farmers, urban food producers, community leaders, and citizens how to produce high-value, nutrient-rich food on small parcels of land. And, in Butte's case, in a challenging climate. John and Andrew talk about the farm's educational capacity and what its research has shown concerning maximizing growing capacity, conserving water, hydroponics, and other issues. And please take a few minutes to complete a survey when the podcast is done. We really do appreciate your feedback to help us make our podcast better. The link is in the notes accompanying this podcast. Let's listen. Good morning. My name is uh, Andrew Coggins, and I'm the regional manager for the Rocky Mountain West region of NCAT. And today I'll be continuing a conversation with John Wallace, manager of the SIF farm here in Butte on some of the challenges he has faced this year and also some of the activities currently happening on the farm. So thanks for being here today, John. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, no problem. So uh, today I was hoping to talk a little bit more about what kind of educational capacity we have for the farm, uh, what kind of topics we're working on, and really kind of what successes we think are valuable to um, other people within this region for growing their own food. And, um, you know, some of the things we really work on are maximizing the growing season, obviously. We have a very short window. Um, and that comes down a lot to, you know, testing different types of season extension tools and figuring out your timing as far as when to put cops in the ground. Um, that always seems to be a very uh, big topic for most people who especially just want to get started. You know, um, <clears throat> so then we work on certain methods. And when you start thinking of, you know, say you want to run a you know, piece of land for multiple years, how do you work without degrading it? And so we work on multiple soil regeneration methods um, that have been able to show results in a smaller time frame. Uh, it's really hard to get a lot of people on board, I think, sometimes when, you know, you're working with cover crops and you know until you find that balance, it's going to be, you know, seven, ten years sometimes, especially with the short growing season we have. So I just wanted to kind of point out some of the few things that we are already seeing results from within, you know, three to five year um, prospects. So, And then the other big thing I think that uh, people within our community like to know about is, you know, what are other unconventional ways of growing their own food, such as microgreens or hydroponics, um, things that you know, when we're in the West – we have to think about conserving water and uh, how we manage 
um, you know, electricity for, for, say, a hydroponics operation or something and having the space for it and making sure that um, that we're being as effective as possible with, with the resources we have. So those are some mm-hmm. of the big topics we like to talk about, at least on the farm. And those are, those are the things that people come to the farm asking us, you know, with questions. And we've been specifically working on demonstrations to kind of expose those um, methods to people. That's great, John. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it's quite a wide program to educate people on. Um, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper, if I can, into these topics you just mentioned um, and how they can be demonstrated on the SIF farm. So, so, so really, what tips do you have for maximizing the growing season? Um, what advice do you have for others in similar regions? Well, you know, we rely so much on these season extension tools, but with really, you know, out of characteristic uh, storms that have been coming through, uh, whether it's just big temperature swings, large wind events, um, big frost, big snows, they seem to just be more random. And so even though we kind of focus on this this three-month growing season, uh, you really got to watch the weather. You, you, when we talk about season extension, maybe I should explain some of these tools. We work with uh, different types of greenhouses, different sizes, widths, different amount of structure within it, and we see how they they deal with um, the elements here, and whether or not they, you know, we can advocate for for someone in a similar region to to rely on an entire crop for something like this. Um, for instance, we have these new Rimal Nor'easters, um, and they—they're a greenhouse that we built. They have a really good structural frame. They can take on a lot of wind, but when we're talking about trying to extend the season, we're not so much talking about—I think—the the air temperature and what what devastation that can have on a crop. But if you're really trying to optimize this this window is really looking at the soil temperature. And so I recommend anybody who's really working, you know, in, in some of these colder climates to, to take a meat thermometer uh, or, or any thermometer and, and put it in the ground before you start making transplants because you might be shocked on a, you know, 80-degree day and the temperature of the soil is still 55 degrees. Um, we got to work with that. And so we're not just measuring the air temperature within the greenhouses. We're looking at the soil temperature and we're also looking at um, the timing of when we can get things in. And what we've noticed okay. is that greenhouses obviously can create a much more warmer climate for the soil. And so what we're seeing, say, around March is uh, 10 to 15 degree warmer soil within a greenhouse than out in the middle of the field. Um, the same goes for raised beds. We don't seem to get the protection in just a raised bed, but the soil temperature can increase between 5 to 10 degrees during that range. And so you're really getting a jump on the season as far as what you can get for germination, especially if you're direct seeding into soil like that. So that's one of the big right. issues we, we talk about. Um, you know, we are also looking at um, less successional crops. And it's a hard thing to get your head around because you know, when, when you realize you, if, if you're growing for yourself, you want lettuce through the entire season. And, and, and same goes for some of the other crops. But we're putting in much more, um, I guess, single yield crops all at one time. So what we're having to deal with is 
of getting a whole plot block ready. And instead of getting multiple, say, yields of carrots throughout the summer, we're really just seeding mm-hmm. the whole block and, and protecting our base, knowing that we have a short season. Anything before and after is risky. So we just try to shoot for our biggest open window and seed it all in one, which is a little bit more different than kind of the way I, I've been growing in the past. So, um, yeah, and those, those are some of the biggest issues, I think, as far as getting your timing right. I mean, the other one is I struggled this year with tomatoes and peppers. And if I can give any mm-hmm. tips to anybody, um, it's almost as if you really can't start. If you start them too early, you're going to run into some issues. You know, we pushed it down to the back of March, and we were still having um, big shocks between transplants. So we start, we grow them about a few inches as far as tomatoes go, and then we transplant to a larger pot. Uh, and then we have the final transplant directly into the ground. And mm-hmm. with all of those shocks in between, I'm kind of finding out that the longer we push back that initial seeding date, we're still getting the same results. And the same goes for transplants of, say, um, you know, squash. Uh, we, we did the same thing there. And um, we grew transplants. We usually grow enough for a plant sale to try to get some, some uh, local food out into and get initiative for people to grow their own local food out into the community. Um, but yeah. we we're also um, comparing how those plants result from, say, a direct seed into one of these such greenhouses that we have. And what we found this year was pretty similar to the last couple of years is direct seeding has actually given the plant the ability to catch up without that threat of those those uh, transplant thrashes. And uh, we yielded at the same time uh, direct seeded plant squash versus transplanted squash. So, you know, if you're really right. thinking about all your resources and your greenhouse space and the cost for soil, that's, that's a good opportunity for you to realize that, you know, sometimes those aren't you're, – you're not getting ahead of the game, I guess, if you were to – to try to prepare any more than that. Um, there, there's a, a threshold and a window, and, and finding that in your own region is, is, is hard. Uh, Buta seems to be around the first week of June, and if you're surrounding areas from here at lower elevations or, or more humid climate, then it's going to be earlier, and uh, you, you really got to find that to maximize your season. So. Yeah, for sure. It sounds as well from what you're saying this year, too, that... Um, it might not work every year, but the simple system or the simpler you could make the system this year uh, work the best. Right. Uh, trying to get uh, ahead of Mother Nature is is a battle, and sometimes you just have to let her play her game. So. For sure, yeah. Okay. Um, so if, you, if you'd like to, I mean, what methods have you um, used to regenerate the soils on the farm, and, and how are they working? Well, we always looked for for the basis, and that's, you know, from any sort of NPK, um, you know, style of mind frame, uh, you want to increase nitrogen to increase your yield and to, to balance out all of that in the best way. And all of our soil tests kind of say that we're really low in nitrogen and, you know, we're kind of moderate in the potassium and the calcium. Um, mm-hmm potassium phosphorus um but um nonetheless um and by the way yeah calcium actually has been an issue because we've actually been very high in calcium and that's caused some issues as far as root rot um and um kind of displacing um nutrient uptake so we we've been looking at those results and we've been trying to figure out our best management plan for it and in our eyes we want to reduce weed pressure 
we want to increase nitrogen, and we want to increase carbon as really our, our big way of kind of letting the soil um, network kind of reheal, regenerate itself. And so mm. we always started with mulching. Well, we made a mistake. I wouldn't say it's a mistake. It's probably a good mistake because we got a bunch of barley straw, and we used that to, to mulch most of our areas. Well, there's a bunch of seeds still in there, so we got inevitably barley throughout the farm. But mm. quackgrass oh, yeah. was our issue, not barley. So, yeah, it, it took some initial you know, weeding to kind of get through that and let the um, – you know, let the crops um, come up through it. But we had really good results as far as the soil composition and um, keeping the extreme summer heat out of the soil as well as, um, you know, really kind of using it as a way to insulate the ground during the swing season. So uh, that's one of our big ways of of working with soil regeneration. Um, I think that's a stepping stone, though. That's really just our ability to actually put down kind of a, a carbon to, to really work as a buffer for the soil. So we definitely worked with uh, mulching, and eventually weed pressure of the quackgrass is really um, – the, the weed pressure from the quackgrass has decreased, and that has been probably our most time-consuming um, job out on the farm is just trying to weed out quackgrass. Um, the other big thing is working with compost – uh, we make our own compost in the typical base system. We, we take in compost throughout the community from the food bank and have people donate it um, in whatever ways they can. And it's just a simple method where we turn it every few weeks, um, try to hit those 130 to 180 degree temperature marks, um, three turns at least to make sure it's not spiking afterwards. And that turns out to be a really good product. And that's one thing I want to talk about is, is there's different qualities of compost. Um, And we've been working specifically with the beam composting, which is biologically enhanced agricultural management. And this is from a uh, doctor, Dr. David Johnson, and he's looking at the ratios of fungi and bacteria as they relate to nutrient uptake. And he did a study, it took four and a a half years, and they found a 25 times increase in active soil fungal biomass through this method of composting, which essentially is letting... Uh, all of the high carbon, high nitrogen, you stack them in layers, you give them all the oxygen and water you need through PVC pipes perforated through there, but you don't turn it and you leave it there for almost a year. And we're thinking that in our climate, obviously where, where our compost uh, goes to rest for the winter, that it might take us two years, but it'd be really interesting because what they did is they were able to make slurries out of this and spread it out on fields and they had an incredible increase in productivity and yield and increase in fungal matter directly into the soil. And it has a huge effect on carbon sequestration and all the benefits that we're really working to see with our, um, you know, our, our soil regenerative methods, but they've yeah. kind of found a way to, to streamline that and see results much quicker, which I think in you know, shorter growing seasons is going to be very effective to help you know, get people aware of what, what they can do to benefit their soil. Yeah, and the so, last thing is, um, and this, is, this is kind of ties in with all of it, but short growing season, we're putting you know, mulching on, but really what we're trying to work on is putting these beds to rest properly. And mm-hmm. it's... We are very often, like, for instance, a garlic crop that comes out in the middle 
uh, late summer, and if we can't turn around and get some sort of cover crop directly seeded in there, a lot of times it sits out and just dries out. And so we're trying to actively keep it covered, keep living roots in there. So that means watering a, a, a plot that isn't necessarily growing something every once in a while before it dries out completely. That really helps those, um, those advantageous weeds, such as the quackgrass, that sneak in. And if you can keep uh, a well water plot and keep keep a you know a full soil web fully operating through the year till things actually do go dormant, um, then we can really get a little bit of extra capture because it's not just what you can grow as far as warm season crops in Butte, but how can you keep your soil active for that entire growing season, and that has major results down the road. And you can see it the next year. Uh, you'll have voluntary uh, spinach. Um, you know, all kinds of just greens and things that they made it because it, the opportunity is right for them um, rather than uh, quack grass or, or something much more um, yeah. uh, that, could, that could really affect our, our future yields. So, Right, yeah. Obviously, the one plant you don't want to see growing um, vigorously mm. during the year. Okay. All right. Um, so what have you been uh, studying as well, John, while testing the various hydroponic systems? Well, hydroponics to me has been an interesting adventure. I, I think it's a very interesting concept. I think it's really good, especially for youth, to learn about hydroponics and to, to learn that uh, there's so much more science behind how these plants are growing than just put the seed in the ground and watch it grow. And, and so I think there's you know, a lot of benefits from that, but we really have to think about how we're doing this sustainably. Uh, you know, there's some really good aspects as far as uh, conservation of water that can happen, but at the same time, when you, when you put those types of nutrients into a reservoir, what do you do when you're done? You know, how are you draining it? Or are you putting it down the drain? Um, are you putting it in your compost? We're looking at those issues, and we're trying to find basically a more um, efficient way of doing it for our own selves and a more overall sustainable way. Um, when it comes to growing um, via water, uh, you, it, it has to do with uh, all of the soil chemistry or the, the water chemistry, and we were running into a lot of issues of lack of oxygen. So we really stepped up and you know tried to work on aeration, worked on different pumps, different methods as far as ebb and flow or just a deep water culture. Um, and we found uh, different types of uh, crops that we could grow that aren't as um, nutrient, um, what am I trying to say? They don't need as many nutrients, and so, you know, such as microgreens or lettuce. And so you're not having to bounce such a, a heavier load of, of dissolved solids through that whole system. And okay, yeah. we, we've yeah. been working with compost teas, essentially, because in my eyes, I think that the most sustainable way to grow uh, via water would be um, some sort of aquaponics. Uh, we struggle in that with our greenhouses and our temperature fluctuations. I don't think we could keep a living you know, fish population throughout the year. And so there's some questionable ethics about that. Uh, other things we were looking into are... Uh, you know, how, how much nutrients do you need for something, say, like microgreens? You know, my first round, I didn't put any nutrient in there. I just grew it with water, which I've done plenty of times as far as with peat moss. Um, mm. But I tended to find that things got very leggy. They were reaching 
for more light, and they seem to be very um, pale and flimsy. And then as soon as I started adding a little bit more nutrients, I got much more fuller um, microgreens. We're working on how much light you need to address those issues, too. Um, you know, for instance, we have a four-tiered hydroponic microgreen set, and so we need to have lights in between there if we were to do this um, th with the full intent of getting the best full quality out of it. Where, honestly, um, you know, after plugging in and, and really reading how much energy usage some of these lights take, I'm looking at uh, LED alternatives. Um, they sell even, right. you know, very cheap, um, uh, you know, the blue-purple lights that work probably just as effectively in that sort of plant stage. And so I don't necessarily think you need to be drawing that much energy to try to pull some crop like that out. You know, same goes for when we tried to grow tomatoes. They were really reaching and getting very leggy and spreading out, um, not very full plants. Um, though the tomatoes that grew there were, were good. So it, it, it kind of depends on the person and who how they're trying to grow and for what purposes. But, you know, that's our job at the Sith Farm, I think, is to really identify how these different methods could be useful in various amounts of uh, operations, whether it's your home garden, uh, it's your, you know, down in your basement and you're able to get all the light that you need and um, versus, you know, growing out in an acre plot. So there's lots of variations of these different uh, methods that we use, and they're not, it's not a cookie-cut form. I mean, it's certain things work for certain people. So we try to pinpoint where, where we can help. Yeah, for sure. That's half the reason we do this, isn't it, John? Um, we, we seek the answers out that other people need to know. So, and as you just said yourself, mm -hmm. the, um, the, the hydroponic systems and various other things they're not, there's a lot of factors to consider with these. There's one big question, though, and, and that's one thing we, have, we haven't got an answer this year, but we're still looking at it. And I think what we're really trying to come down to is, is the food that you grow hydroponically equal in nutrient value to the food you grow in soil? And we've been trying yeah. to figure out ways to kind of measure um, sucrose levels within the fruit to, to kind of resemble what type of um, bioactivity is happening within the plant. And there's nutrient density meters that they're working on to try to expose a lot of this stuff. Um, but we didn't get enough data, I, don't, I think, this year to, to really clarify yes or no. Um, but th that is always something in our question is, you know, just because you can grow more in a smaller confined place, does it equal the same nutrient value as the, the organic soil grown? Um, alternative so yeah for sure very big question okay this all sounds great John um, yeah well as I say thank you very much for the update on the various activities that have been going on this year and also for your thoughts going forward plenty of ideas going forward I'm sure and we wish you a successful end to this year and we look forward to the next season thank you Andrew have a good day Thank you for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. Please share this podcast if you can, and take a moment to leave a comment and subscribe. This really helps us get the word out about our sustainable agriculture programs. Also, don't forget to take a few minutes to complete the survey to let us know what you thought of the podcast. We do appreciate it. 
For more information on this topic, you can contact John Wallace directly via email at johnw.incat.org. And check out all of our sustainable agriculture resources at the ATRA website, www.atra.incat.org. The links are in the notes that accompany this podcast. We'll catch you next week, and until then, keep on farming.